0: understand i could have had class i could have been a contender i could have been somebody
1: so he's almost like having a second captain in the (sighs) team second captain first captain whatever
2: Good morning. Thank you for joining us in Second Captain Saturday. Owen here with Murph and Ken. Hi, guys. Hello there, Owen. How you doing, Owen? Ah, oh, I'm frustrated, Ken, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm-hmm. There was a golden opportunity this week to solve all this Brexit stuff once and for all, but it slipped oh. through our fingers. Oh, no. Wow. Yeah, it all took place at a sidewalk outside a plush hotel in New York City. Conor McGregor, the unofficial king of Ireland, mm-hmm. literally walked right past Jacob Rees-Mogg, the unofficial king of England... Without realising who it was. Has
1: Jacob Rees-Mogg been promoted? Unofficially. <laughs>
2: McGregor was strolling around the city, a free man, having avoided jail time for his attack on a bus full of fellow UFC fighters, completely oblivious to Rees-Mogg coming the other direction with his family. If only they'd stopped and chatted hard borders, backstops, common trade agreements. This stuff would have been trashed out in a couple of minutes. I
1: don't think These two was, great ambassadors was oblivious to um, McGregor, though. He seemed to be actually standing there watching him with his kids. What, he's a
2: massive UFC fan. Reese Mogg, you kidding me? Jose Aldo, he's a huge like Aldo fan. A couple fan. of
1: junior Reese at least are Conor McGregor fans. I think
2: Reese Mogg is a UFC fighter. Or certainly MMA fighter, isn't he? Ground and Pound merchant. I
1: don't think you know much about the UFC.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if Anderson McGregor can, okay, we can't say he had other things in his mind. It was announced last night that he will return to the UFC for his first fight since 2016. His opponent. Well, it's the one and only Khabib Nurmagomedov, the principal target of that bus Close enough, Ken. The principal <laughs> target of that Khabib—everyone seems to call him—the yeah. bus attack, which landed McGregor in court. This is the guy who he was after when he was throwing trucks, throwing trolleys through buses. Could it be McGregor's outrageous behavior was all part of promoting his next bout? A <laughs> <laughs> well, shocking development. Well, if it
1: wasn't at the time, it definitely is now because the promotional video literally—I'm going to con- say it was at the that time. Footage. I'm going to say this. You're was- going so far as to say it was. <laughs> But it just got Connor a little McGregor, bit out of hand. He ended up getting community service?
2: Potentially, yeah. Does he... Community service, really? Is it going to bother McGregor that much? He'll I, teach a few guys how to do a bit of UFC. Yeah. A bit of MMA.
1: Yeah. Tell me about it. I mean, it's a cynical way to look at it, Owen, but it does seem to form... It's worked out well. ...the of the publicity, the promotional it's campaign. It's worked out well for, for what all I, concerned. What I understand... Is going to be the biggest fight in history? Well, it
2: is. It says it in the video. (laughs) As for Brexit, that remains unresolved and emotions in the UK this week have been running high with the release from prison of Tommy Robinson, a figure who's emerged as the darling of the far right, not just in the UK, but around the world. Our guest today has spent much of his TV career reporting on Tommy Robinson. That's when he's not arriving first on the scene at the Brixton riots or reporting on underground communities living in the sewers of Bucharest. Channel 4's Porig O'Brien is going to be keeping you company on the show this morning. He seems like a man who can get the job done no matter what the circumstances Murph, but can Porg become the second captain's greatest non sports person? Sports person, how is that leaderboard looking at the moment?
3: I could have been a contender, I could could have have been been somebody. somebody. Much like a testing US Open leaderboard, scoring is not stellar, but the drama is intense as you roll into the closing stages of our greatest non sports person sports person contest. Wrestling's Ashling B is <laughs> still out in front on 78 points, with last week's guest, Tommy for the famine, yep. Indeed uh, Tucked in behind her in second place on 76.5 points. Then <laughs> it's David Bedial on 75 points, with Paul Howard bringing up the rear on 72. It couldn't be tighter at this stage of the season,
2: and we await Pork's score with almost. Unbearable anticipation. <laughs> Borg of. is on the way and we've got a massive weekend of sport ahead of us. Hockey and Hurling fight for the country's attention as Clare and Galway replay a classic semi-final and the Irish women's hockey team tried to make more history in a World Cup semi-final for crying out loud. Unbelievable stuff by them. Now back around the time of the foundation of the GAA Hurling and Hockey were competing against each other and in some press reports around the time Hurling was condemned as as and I quote the swiping game of the savage. Archbishop Croke, on the other hand, described hockey, and indeed all foreign games, as effeminate follies played by Degenerate Dandies. <laughs> we declare this feud <laughs> back on this weekend, Murphy. Yeah, he's with words, does the Archbishop. Will you watch the swiping game of the Savage or the sport of the Degenerate Dandies? It's your choice. We're going to focus on the Degenerate Dandies by catching up with Ireland's first ever female track and field Olympian and 58 times capped hockey international Maeve Kyle later in today's show. Maeve is an absolute hero. We've had her on before and you won't want to miss that one. You can tweet us at Second Captains, text one. music first, and then it's Porgo Brian on Second Captain Saturday. Oh, Just when you're thinking things over by the charlatans there, and we are now ready to go with this morning's guest on Second Captain Saturday. He's a Balnuslow boy who's travelled the world, reporting firstly for the BBC and in more recent years for Channel 4. It's the award-winning, the brilliant Porig O'Brien. Porig, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. The big question straight off the bat is, how often do they get the pronunciation of your name wrong across the water?
4: Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, So many times. The worst was Baldrick. <laughs> um, we, I was. We've got. We had this open plan office at the BBC uh, on BBC London News, and I was kind of nervous on my like first or second day. And I'll never forget the phone going like you know over this bank of desks, and this lovely English woman standing up and shouting across the bank of journalists. Do we
2: have a baldric? But <laughs> uh, well, what about Paxman or Snow? John Snow? Any any of those big hitters ever get it wrong?
4: Yeah, John. John, the odd time at the beginning. Paxo, not so much. But um, you roll with it. It doesn't bother me at all, to be honest.
2: Tell us how you ended up where you've ended up. It seems like a little bit of a roundabout route into the media.
4: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, 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 the, the short version is um, I went to uh, UCD and I studied social science there, and then I went to Maynooth to do kind of community development. Uh, I, did a, I did a master's in community development with a view to sort of, you know, changing the world. Um, that didn't quite pan out, so I decided to sort of settle for trying to uh, understand it instead, and uh, went on to moved to London after a woman, and then uh, went into, started studying journalism part-time while doing sort of community work in kind of inner city London as well. So I was studying studying half the week, working as a youth worker of the other half the week, had a toddler as well that I was looking after, um, and eventually got my big break um, on Radio 4 where I got a trainee reporter job. Um, on, on Radio 4. And that was, the, that, was the, that was the sort of big break for me really. And then from radio moved into television, uh, did sort of BBC London TV news, did the sort of crime beat in London uh, for, for a few years and then uh, on to Newsnight and then Channel 4 News.
2: Well, you mentioned, the, just to take us back a little bit to the community work that you mentioned there in London, was that something that you'd been doing in Ireland before you left?
4: Yeah, I was, actually. I did um, my first job, would you believe, was working as a community worker on Sharkin Island off (laughs) the coast of West Cork. Right. Um, There were 70 people on the island. I was like a sort of a civil service sort of Father Ted and literally actually was living in the vacated parish priest's house that was built onto the gable end of the church in the middle of the island. So I did that for about a year and a half. Um, then did a bit of community work, so sort of rural development work in Boris Akane in North Tipperary. Uh, did a spell in Fatima Mansions in inner city Dublin. I don't, I don't know if Fatima Mansions still exist anymore. I think they've sort of tore down the the towers and all. Um, and then moved across to London doing sort of that, but to sort of a, a much more sort of edgy version of that uh, in and around uh, Brixton.
2: What do you mean by a, a, more, edgy, a more edgy well, it was, version?
4: Well, it's just a much more kind of... Lots more crime, lots more kind of difficult issues to deal with. Um, but to be honest with you, lads, you kind of you know, after a few years, realised that I was crap at uh, community development and youth work. What, what was it? What, it's really tough.
1: What? What were your uh, shortcomings in the role?
4: Oh God! Not <laughs> getting started. I mean, it was mainly it's all sort of committee based stuff. Do you know what I mean? So any decision that gets made. Is made sort of by is is made by a kind of a volunteer committee, and there's all sorts of kind of micro politics at play. So that was actually I that was quite a good grounding for my work at at the BBC <laughs> in the years in the years to come. But uh, just couldn't sort of cope with uh, the, the the committee committee decision making.
2: So you got into television, as you said, the BBC and on into Channel 4. But even going back to your BBC days, a figure who has popped up this week in British Life also featured and has featured quite a lot in your reporting, Tommy Robinson, who's been released from prison. Can you maybe just outline, first of all, your own background reporting on Tommy Robinson and just explain uh, who this figure is for for people who aren't too familiar?
4: Yeah, sure. I mean... I first, I know Tommy Robinson going back years now. I mean, I, I first met him, I'd say, 10 years ago. Um, and he was, I'll never forget the the first evening I met uh, Robinson. Just just for, for viewers, for listeners who don't, who, who may not know who he is, he's become a sort of a lightning rod in the UK and indeed across Europe and in, in America for the sort of alt-right, anti-Islam, uh, libertarian, some would say xenophobic, bigoted worldview. Um, and back in the day though, when I first met him, uh, he was just launching the English Defence League. And the English Defence League were born out of the kind of football hooligan scene in the UK. And the first thing to know about Tommy Robinson is he's not Tommy Robinson. That's not his name. His name is Stephen Yaxley-Lennon. But anyway, we got this call Um, at BBC London about this English Defence League group that we're going to launch in Luton, just north of London. And we arrive, it it was about like 9 or 10 o'clock in the evening, it was dark, and we arrive into Luton and we're directed to this disused warehouse just outside of town. Mm -hmm. And it was just myself and one other journalist. We walk up into this disused warehouse and there's about 25 lads in balaclavas inside in this disused warehouse. Among them was Tommy Robinson, all in balaclavas. And the point, the point of the press conference was they wanted to tell the media that they weren't Nazis. So they decided they wanted to burn a swastika on camera. That was the sort of gimmick. Unfortunately, they they had managed to buy a, a swastika that wasn't flammable. (laughs) <laughs> um, and I'll never forget sort of my cameraman and me, my cameraman sort of on his knees kind of filming the, the corner of this swastika as the lads in the balaclavas tried to set it on fire with a, with a little cigarette lighter. <laughs> Couldn't set it on fire for love nor money, which was telling in itself. Um, sent one of the boys out to get a canister of petrol from the local garage, <laughs> doused the thing in petrol, and of course it went up in a sort of, you know, sulfuric plume of smoke. Um, I'm sure sort of burning a wee bit of uh, Tommy's eyebrows in, in, in the process. So that was my introduction to Tommy. But what's interesting about him is from that sort of clownish kind of crazy introduction, he, he's become this, this real figure, you know, as I said, a kind of a lightning rod for so, so much else really in the UK. And, 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 and even though there are sort of funny things about Tommy, he, he's far from a clown, before I tell you why I think that, one of the other sort of running gags in Luton Town was that um, was Tommy's background. Um, because he's, he, the family are Irish, um, which was, was, was ironic, you know, for, for, uh, in terms of his narrative around immigration, of yeah. course. And then Tommy went on to, to run a tanning salon in, in Luton. And the joke in Luton was always like, you know, Tommy Robinson making people browner. <laughs> um, but then, of course, he goes on to to, to become this 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 this, this uh, really quite sort of powerful cultural figure in the UK. Um, and, and 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 what I was saying earlier about about the sort of clownish nature of it, I mean, I've always been interested in Tommy because he is he is a clever man. Do you know what I mean? There is a charisma to this man, but he's not a strategic man. He only ever thinks sort of one step ahead rather than five or six steps ahead. So he never gains any real political traction in the UK. It's it's always just as a kind of a provocateur. Culturally, it's it's got a lot of volume, but it never seems to translate into into real uh, mobilization around uh, around the ballot box.
1: Cork, you mentioned that he'd become a lightning rod. I mean, how did he go from being this sort of vaguely farcical fringe figure to commanding so much attention? How has this happened?
4: That is a very good question. I mean, initially, he tapped into the whole football hooligan network, which was quite sort of extensive back in the day and they were at a loose end because the authorities in the UK were clamping down on hooliganism, the price of football tickets had sort of gone through the roof. So there, there was, a, a, you know, a fairly substantial number of, of the hooligan set that were looking for something to do, to be honest. And then Tommy pops up with this narrative around, uh, you know, Muslims and anti-multiculturalism and uh, a, a, a kind of a nostalgic vision of, of an old Britain. And and so to a certain extent he he latched on that contingent latched on to him. Um the, the new part of this is how he's become a cultural phenomenon. And the one of the reasons why he's become a cultural phenomenon is because, for example, he started working with Canadian and American um, websites like Rebel TV and the sort of the new libertarian, young alt right set, and they've got money behind them. Remember, and so for, uh, for example, Tommy was given a speech there. There was a there was a big free speech demonstration in in Whitehall, uh, just opposite Downing Street, a few months ago, and Tommy Tommy arrives up onto stage with his, you know, he's looking very slick. He's got his expensive suit on. So much money had been plowed into that event, lads. Mm. It was so slick. The production, the stage, the management, there were screens, they had performers. It, 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 it was not the Tommy Robinson that I remember back in that warehouse in Luton with an <laughs> ill-filling balaclava trying to set a non-flowerable <laughs> swastika on fire. This was a whole other thing. And what's changed is, is, is I think, the money. And also... You know, there has been a cultural shift. I mean, Robinson and his ilk, their time
2: has come. Of course, what supporters of Tommy Robinson and the likes would say, Borg, is that what you're doing isn't real journalism, that it's fake news and so on. In fact, that's exactly what they do say. You had a report from Italy uh, this week where you got really, really good access to Salvini, Matteo Salvini, the Italian Trump, the uh, far right Deputy Prime Minister there. And if you look at the comments underneath, it's interesting, there's a lot more dislikes than likes. There's a lot of Channel 4, extreme left, fake news, this kind of thing, and obviously BBC uh, get a lot of stick from both sides at the moment. It used to be this way. Why do you think it is that there is such a such a distrust now of what you're trying to do?
4: Um, I, think, I think there's a few different things going on here. I don't, think, I don't think there's one like answer to that question. I mean, I think we have a certain amount of blame that we need to kind of shoulder as journalists. I think that particularly, um, you know, big journalistic organizations that are, bi- are based in big metropolitan centers, you know, some, some elements of that institution have lost touch with people and have lost touch with people. Well, Brexit was a classic example. I mean, a lot of soul-searching went on in media, in newsrooms after Brexit because, you know, a, a substantial majority of my profession just didn't see that coming. And the reason we didn't see it coming, I think, is... It's partly a structural problem. I think the kind of infrastructure of local journalism and local newspapers and local radio and TV stations that used to exist, that's all become eroded. And, 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 and the institutions have become focused on the big metropolitan centers. And we've lost touch of it. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that's part of it. But also, of course, social media has just made everybody a journalist in inverted commas. So Tommy Robinson can call himself a journalist. Anyone with an iPhone can call himself a journalist. But the difference is that when I go to Italy and I go to, you know, a Lega-Matteo Salvini rally, I am genuinely there to try and understand what's going on. That's what I am genuinely there to do. And the report that we did last night, and there's a second one uh, going out soon, into the sort of support base around Matteo Salvini's party I challenge anyone really not to view, to look at that and, and see that as, as what it is, which is an honest attempt to try and understand what motivates that support base.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I what, what you do, one thing you do notice is is something that's becoming increasingly controversial when people argue about the news, you know, on social media. Is this is the idea of balance? Journalism, you know the the idea or or this kind of long standing model of how to do a news discussion piece, where you've got uh, on any given issue, you've got a person, a person who's saying you know A, and then you get on another person who's saying the opposite of A, and you let them kind of have at each other, and then you sort of, I suppose, the implication is you decide, but. This has become controversial because people are saying, if if you take, for instance, the issue of, say, climate change, it's like, you know, you've got someone on talking about this problem, and then you've got somebody on who's going to talk an absolute load of nonsense, and yet oh the. God, b- don't b- get
2: me started. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Sounds like we might need a separate program for this conversation. Yeah,
4: this is Get the beeper out. Have you got one soon, lads? <laughs> I can feel the, the heart starting to, to beat. It is boy, kind yeah. of
1: a, it is a problem, though, isn't it? Because I mean, on the one hand, you've got you've got news organizations like, I guess, the BBC or like Channel 4, who uh, have been using this type of model or or have the idea of, you know, we want to get fairness, we want to look at different sides of an issue. And then you've got like a new type of journalism, uh, as exemplified by, I suppose, Tommy Robinson, which deals not in balance or fairness or, you know, trying to understand an issue. What he says he d- is dealing in is truth. He says, I'm telling you the truth. This is what he says. It's not like a, a, a both sides thing. It says this is what I think and this is the truth, you know what I mean? So what, where do you, Where do you sort of mainstream organizations go from here? I mean, because it, it stick seems... Stick to what so-
4: you're good at. Stick, stick to Stick to how it used to be. I mean, I, I, I sound like a proper old dinosaur. But basically, you know, do the job. Go, go out and find the facts. Go out onto the streets and knock on the doors and find out what, what's, what what the story is actually about. Do it the way we always used to do it, in the old-fashioned way. Do You know, it's the classic example, isn't it? A journalist walks into a room, no windows, no doors, asks one fella, what's the weather like outside? He says, it's raining. Second fella in the second chair in the room says, what's the weather like outside? He says, oh, the sun is splitting the rocks. What does the journalist do? The journalist goes out the door and finds out what the weather's like himself. Do you know what I mean? Walk out the door, walk down the street, make the calls. Just, just, Just find out the facts. Yeah, but and, then and somebody the truth, comes in. You know, sorry it, to but then all, somebody calls it, it, in and says, "Hang on a 2nd
2: Somebody calls in then and says, "Hang on a 2nd You've only got one person. You've got one person. Tell me it's raining. I, d- I can't trust that person necessarily. I want the person on to argue that it's not raining. That's actually the way.
1: Yeah, it works it? now. Unless everybody is standing outside in the rain, they won't. They won't believe <laughs> you and <laughs> come back in and say <laughs> it's raining.
4: But listen, I say t- I, I just. It's funny you should say this because this morning I was watching. Does this clip, going viral at the moment. It's from one of the morning programs. I think it might be ITV or one of those. Um, and basically, I mean, proper... It's silly season on acid, basically, because it's about... They had this conspiracy theorist talking about, uh, you know, the fact that all the, the moon landings were fake. Ah, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And his sort of premise seemed to be that the the, 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 you know, the whole existence of the moon itself may be sort of hanging in the balance. <laughs> and they had, they had a scientist on then to try and refute this. And the question was, you know, so... Scientist A, you know what's the moon actually made of, and, and you kind of think, bloody hell, this is this is this is we, we, we've got lost in in some sort of crazy Alice in Wonderland type world where the whole kind of nature of existence itself basically has to have you know a pro and a con to uh, debate it on, in a television studio. But 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 that said, I think there is there is there is there is a, a an issue of trust. That goes back to I think for me anyway, goes back to the the extent to which big news organizations have lost touch with localities and neighborhoods and streets that for me is 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 the is is one of the big best ways of combating this is, is to go back to that old fashion model of doing i mean you 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 use modern means and of course you use the internet and you use your youtube but nothing will ever beat for me a journalist on a street who knows that neighborhood knocking on the right door and talking to the right person
2: yeah some bad news is that there was a survey on that the slot that you talked about and i think more people believed the um, moon landing deniers than the other way around, Borg. but I don't want you to blow a gasket entirely, so I won't ask you that. F- <laughs> I'll finish this topic by uh, just asking you why you feel there haven't, haven't been, hasn't been a Tommy Robinson figure in Ireland, uh, or is it just a case of not yet?
4: That's a very good question. I've been, I was thinking about this recently. Um, I, I'm going to say something. I, I, I'm bearing in mind now that I haven't lived in Ireland for 20 years, three years right so I am a long way from sort of a man with his his finger on the sort of cultural pulse of the country but I think Ireland is a more is a less divided society than than Britain is I think I think even though of course there's loads of issues and even of course there's loads of problems I think there's something that, that there, there's that there's something more cohesive about um, about Ireland um, than than there is in England. And I'm not even quite sure why that is, um, but I think, bizarrely, I think, and I never thought I'd say this, I think politics might be working better in Ireland than it is in, in the UK. I think that there is... There's just more to bring people together, whether it's the GAA, whether it's other civic organisations, whether it's even the church. God help us! I think there's just there's there's more there's more kind of glue in Irish society um, than 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 there is in 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 the UK. That's a slightly airy fairy answer for you there yeah. lads But
2: No not at all Porg That's a brilliant insight I think Into the tension that exists in Britain at the moment But it's nothing compared to the tension that awaits you after the break Up next on Second Captain Saturday We'll get the lowdown on this sporting life of Porg O'Brien RTE Radio 1. <sighs> Second Captain, First Captain, whatever we're just a few hours away from Ireland's World Cup semi-final in the hockey, which gives us an excuse to check in with the great Maeve Kyle on the show a little bit later on. Thanks so much for all the texts and tweets so far. You've clearly been enjoying our guest this morning. Channel 4's Pork, O'Brien.
3: Yeah, I'm actually a little curious uh, about something, Pork. Um I know your lovely deep broadcasting voice will be getting lots of attention this morning. Did you depart Ballinasloe sounding like that? Or has it taken <laughs> years of uh, perfecting? Because I too am the owner of Ireland's... Recognized most sexiest accent, the North Galway accent, and I'm plotting to move to the BBC myself in the very near future, so I'm just curious.
4: I, I don't know, I, I kind of I think it might be. I'm just home from a week camping basically on the West Coast. Um so when I go home for a week, it it you know, the accent I can feel it sort of coming on a little in. stronger. And then yeah. of course there's a compulsory after a few pints, it gets a little stronger. <laughs> when myself and my wife are arguing it gets a little stronger. <laughs> um but but I, I kind of I, I do that said, kind of pride myself in, in kind of not uh not going, you know full sort of west brit with the accent and 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 and, and kind of I feel quite proud of my accent and I feel quite proud of that accent being on channel 4 News, that sort of bastion of of um of britishness
3: yeah it is kind of refreshing though to to hear, to hear an, accent, an Irish accent unfiltered on British television, has it ever been a factor in your reporting, like your Irishness, the Irishness of your name, the Irishness of your accent, and particularly, I suppose, in relation to, you know, the English Defence League or, uh, you know, far-right English organisations you have no love for, for
4: Ireland? Well, the thing about that is, though, that, like, as I said earlier, you know, Tommy Robinson, or Stephen Yaxley-Lennon, yeah, all his crew were Irish back along. Um, and then his 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 sort of right hand man Kevin Carroll, his family are all Irish as well, so you know it, it would have been even more ironic for them to sort of have a go at me um be, because that 's where they 're from in the world as well. But in terms of sort of how people are towards me as as a sort of an Irish person in britain um i 've had nothing i 've had no ill feeling no ill will. You know, I I haven't experienced any sort of racism or anything like that uh, ever uh, in in Britain, thank God. Now, that may be because I'm sort of, you know, uh, maybe slightly oblivious to it or too busy to to sort of (laughs) see it. it. But uh, no, thank God, I've never uh, had any sort of negative experiences around that at all.
2: Now, we've been trying to find this season's greatest non-sports person, sports person on the show. And I believe the competition is over right now. People may not know this. Murph and Ken but Pork here has cycled the Tour de France that's what my research says Pork. <laughs> that is so it, it says it right here in front of me it says, it says Porg has cycled the Tour de France oh, ask him that's brilliant yeah. um, no
4: let me let, let me be be, be clear yeah, um, yeah. so I cycled once I cycled the La Tap de Tour which is like a, on one of the kind of uh, tour free days amateurs get to uh cycle one of the stages and oh god i mean (laughs) i really didn't do well um go go on on, i mean i think the plan was that i was going to i was going to actually cycle the tour cycle that stage and i was going to cycle through the finishing line and i was going to propose to my wife to be oh wow (laughs) and i had the ring and it was you know, it was going to be a glorious moment, both for me and sort of romantic Irishmen everywhere, and and I, I just didn't didn't finish, <laughs> I didn't finish it, and I got we got picked up by the, um, you know, the sweep up buses. Yeah. Uh, me and you know a few a few other uh, smokers basically, <laughs> um, and uh, we, we I remember kind of driving through these kind of French villages in the bus and like little French children coming pointing, laughing at the buses and <laughs> arriving into the kind of par- car park as you know, the event was over basically at night and there was my wife to be in the car park and arriving on the bus and I could not bring myself to propose in such a uh, sort of circumstance. I did later on, but uh, that was uh, that was not good. It was, it was it was messy. How, I can beat that though.
2: Oh, well, hold on a second. I just want to find out how exhausted were you to have to be picked up by those buses? That sounds like pretty backbreaking stuff. I
4: was in a bad way and, and it was a mistake I had made once before actually because you know when the kind of lactic acid or whatever it's called starts to uh you know course through the legs i remember i remember and i hope this isn't too crude for your listeners but i remember i remember having to go to the toilet on the side of the road getting off the bike crouching down uh so you you can read what's going on basically crouching down on the side of the road and my knees locked <laughs> Um, and I, I remember I, I could, like, I literally could not straighten my two legs, oh, no. so sort of had to, like, like a, like a crab, sort of shuffle back onto the road, um, and I had to just sit on the side of the road for hours until the bus, uh, the bus arrived.
2: Oh, that's a new one for a, mm. a RT Radio One audience we'll on a Saturday morning, a, I, I would imagine. Draw a discreet veil over that. Poor you also ran the London Marathon, is that right?
4: Yeah, I did. I did, yeah, yeah. This is terrible, guys. This is... This is this. i tell you what, better than the marathon, though, was yep. community games, Garbley, Balna now, now you're talking. Uh, okay, sounds like we're moving into ha- sporting highlight
2: territory. So 1981-82, what, what's the event again? Because it sounds uh, like a sporting highlight. It's highland. the
4: community games. you yeah. remember the community games? Yeah, of course. It was like, yeah. you know, a big local sort of sporting occasion in Garbley, And I remember... I, I remember... a couple of things I remember about it. I remember I was wearing kind of burgundy slacks for for the for the race around the field, and a kind of a Superman T-shirt that was made of some sort of kind of really hot sort of flammable plastic material, I remember legging it around the field uh, twice, and then drinking a liter and a half of Lucozade, uh-huh. uh okay. and going behind a tree and having a real sort of. You know, exorcist meets energy drinks moment, <laughs> uh, just getting violently ill behind the, behind the tree in Garbley after coming second last in the race. So there you go.
3: Uh, there was also a, a water drinking competition that uh, I believe yes, you want there to... Re, the, yeah. there,
4: there's a recurring theme here around sort of projectile vomit Yeah, and, I was going to say... Endeavors, yeah. 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 Uh, so that was, that was a, I think it may have been the same summer, a group of neighbors' kids got together at Harbour Road, Ballinasloe. Uh, there was ten of us, and we were in a neighbor's house. And this is obviously before the days of PlayStation and Fortnite and anything very much at all. And someone had the fantastic idea that we would have a competition to see who could drink the most water.
2: <laughs>
4: um, and we, we lined up like pints of the stuff. And I remember the winner was Declan Kenny. Hello, Declan Kenny. He's in America now.
2: Congratulations, Declan. He
4: won. Uh, and he got, again, again, I couldn't even win a water drinking competition, basically. <laughs> but he, he must have drank, I say, about nine or ten pints of water, which is, an incre- is actually a dangerous thing to do. So kids, if you're listening to this, yeah. do not do this at home but um, yeah but I lost that too oh, do yeah.
2: enter the community games but maybe yeah. don't drink we're also trying so to conserve water, water, I mean, water here as well so. <laughs> yeah right There's now fair. do not be drinking 9 or 10 yeah. litres of water I do have to put <laughs> so it sounds like the highlight is community games undoubtedly I do have to uh, uh, push you it sounds like you didn't want to talk about it but I need to know your marathon finishing time I only ask you in the interests of, of journalism poor, because Fintan O'Toole Irish Times journalist is a previous marathon runner a previous guest on the show and he finished his 1996 Dublin marathon in less than three and a half hours under three and a half hours three hours 24 That's minutes yeah how do you to to. he did yep
4: god that's impressive oh no I was way I was <laughs> like I'd say I, I can't I, 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 I can vaguely remember like 4.50 it was just shocking No, ah, okay oh. definitely sub
2: 5 hours sub 5 hours we'll take that look some fairly stunning achievements there from Port but will it be enough Murph could you please do the honours and rank this sporting life of Port O'Brien
0: you don't understand I could have had class We
2: don't have stars in this game Mr. Weaver
0: well, what do you
3: have then People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. All right, Borg, the time has come for us to rank your all time sporting highlights. ...and identify the sports person that we feel most closely resembles your sporting personality... ...and then come up with a score out of 100 via our rigorous scoring process... ...that's me pulling a figure out of my head... ...to discover if you will become this year's greatest non-sports person sports person. And uh, first of all, I'm actually going to overrule you. I'm sorry, can I overrule someone on their own personal sporting highlight? You're goddamn right I can, (laughs) On. So you may feel like running in the community games in a pair of burgundy slacks... ...and vomiting violently afterwards is a highlight, but for me... It's got to be the Tour de France. Come on! I mean, you attempted a Pyrenean stage of the Tour de France, and yeah. successful conclusion of said stage or not, that takes guts. Henceforth, Fair I'll
4: take and that. Prepare- and we did get married in the end. Exactly. So it was wit- wit. Yeah.
3: Exactly. Henceforth, you'll be known as the Mountain Goat. ...of the Channel 4 newsroom. <laughs> sure, the mountain goat is blind, has three legs... ...and can't handle its leucoside... ...but it's a mountain goat, nevertheless. Uh, oh, your, your shameful display on the Pyrenees... ...reminds me of nothing <laughs> more than... ...Roberto no Mas duran ...whose refusal to continue in his 1980 ...rematch against Sugar Ray Leonard... ...lives on in infamy. He quit mid-round, you quit in a ditch. He once knocked out a horse... ...you're known as the mountain goat. This couldn't be more perfect. So taking all that into account... ...I'm going to give you 74 points good enough for fourth place ah. Porik oh
4: god that's, I think that's the best I've ever done <laughs> from.
3: well just out of the medals but nevertheless yeah, there have only been
2: five guests so yeah. far
3: <laughs> 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 Porik hands of stone O'Brien this has been your sporting ah, life give it
2: up round of applause please for O'Brien thank you Porik. thank you so much a rather beautiful song isn't it brand new Irish music for you there and second captain Saturday Song of Two Birds is the name of that one it's by David Kitt who spent much of this week in the news I do hope you had finished eating your breakfast by the time poor God Brian got around to telling his Tour de France story mm. that, that took an unexpected and disgusting twist it did, it uh, did Murph I've got to ask you water drinking competitions is this a North Galway thing you just lure you <laughs> as much water down you as you can <laughs> last man standing
3: hydration is very important to us yeah, uh, yeah. in Northeast Galway no I, I. to be honest I haven't Ever never heard of that. And I think that that is kind of a mid-August end of the summer holidays. There's literally <laughs> no nothing else to, to do. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, we've basically tried everything this <laughs> summer. Is there anything else that we could do competitively before we
2: have to go back to school? Water drinking? I mean... You know, uh, I just hope it wasn't a particularly dry summer We focused the chat there on Tommy Robinson But Porg has on so much great stuff If you haven't seen his report Bruce Lee, King of Romania's sewers About a community of drug addicts living underground in Bucharest Do have a look on YouTube It's absolutely amazing We'll tweet a link to it anyway We have already tweeted a link I believe yeah. It burst through the 3 million views on YouTube this week So uh, well worth a look there The Irish hockey team are just a matter of hours away From their World Cup semi-final And we've got a very interested spectator on the line Maeve Kyle, great to talk to you again
0: Thank you very much, indeed. It's great to hear you.
2: Yeah, it's and great I'm, to hear you.
0: I just want to wish the world's girls all the luck in the world, and just keep keep playing your own game.
2: Ah, uh, brilliant! I think the last time we spoke to you was about your athletics achievements, uh, how you became the first woman to compete for Ireland in track and field at the Olympics. But you, yeah. had, a, you had a great hockey career as well. Is it right that you were named on the world all star team twice?
0: I think so. I can't <laughs> goodness, I can't remember.
2: That's what I have in front of me, Maeve, twice the, in the All-Star team in the 1950s.
0: Yeah, right, yeah. I loved, I loved, you know, I loved my sport. I loved playing hockey. I loved the team games, but I loved the individual sport too. I just loved sport. And I was, that's the way I was reared. I grew up in a boys' school with three brothers, so you can imagine.
2: <laughs> the European Championships and the World Cups, all those kind of things, didn't really start until the 1970s and the 1980s. Right. So what kind of countries would you have been playing against in your international career?
0: Well, we played in the home countries. We didn't get very often the chance to play in any other European countries. We played in against Holland. Uh, it was, it was a, we had matches against them a couple of times. But we didn't have, there wasn't the same level of wide international, you know, travel even those days. We, a long time ago. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we could end up playing Holland again in a World Cup final if things go well over the next, yeah, absolutely. the next few hours. The excitement this team has given us this week has been amazing. Have you been enjoying it?
0: Oh, thoroughly, absolutely! I got a watching. I'm just down there in bed reading the paper this morning. <laughs> so I'm, mean, you know, the. I just, I you know, I just have always had a great love for hockey. It was always my number one sport, and I mean, I started playing when I was about seven years of age in a boys' school with boys, and uh, my dad let me play with them. So <laughs> I learned. I learned the hard way. <laughs>
3: these uh, these uh, women they're such powerful role models for young girls you're talking yourself there about starting at the age of seven but for seven year old girls today they're just uh, they're just brilliant role models aren't they
0: yeah absolutely yeah I, I think to life was totally different in those days there was no such thing as television you were only allowed to turn in our house you were only allowed to turn on the radio i wasn't allowed to turn on the radio until I was about 12 or 13 but you know it was that sort of life your life was very much more controlled by your parents and your family and so you you played out of doors, you did, we were very lucky because we lived in the school and had all the, the facilities to play out, had the river to swim in and all the rest of it, you know.
2: Something that struck me watching the team at the moment is how much they're enjoying it. And they've actually talked about this, that they're smiling a lot during the anthems. They're they're really Absolutely. embracing it. I suppose that's that's quite important. It's not always that easy it's for very sports important.
0: people. Yeah. It's important. It hasn't become a business. It's still mm. a pleasure.
2: The only sour note, I guess, is that it's emerged over the course of the last week or so. The players have to actually pay um, part of their own way. Can you believe that?
0: Well, you know, it's a bad thing. It's a sour note in many ways. And yet, in many ways, it makes you... I was going to say, I'm talking really, of course, from my day, it makes you more aware of how fortunate you are that you can afford to make a contribution, which is really what it is.
2: Yeah, and I guess hopefully with this success... The sport will become more mainstream. Would you like to see that? It's it's always yes, been it's always been because popular, I, think, I guess, mate, But well, it hasn't so been central. Many, yeah.
0: So many girls, particularly, it's one of the very few sports that they can play at a very high level. You know, there's not, you know, sports in, because we don't have the facilities. Always, we have more facilities now than in my day. With a heck of a lot more. But I mean, there, you, we don't have that many opportunities. We're an island race a lot of kids don't get the opportunity to play team games even because there there aren't enough people to make up teams you know <laughs> so i often wonder how much talent you miss in in a country area you know
2: yeah give us your prediction Maeve. do you think we're going to win today and make it into a world cup final i
0: think they're quite capable of yes. it they're they're good team they're a, a They're a clever team and they they work well together, which is the most important thing of all. They're not a set of individuals, they're a a team.
2: Listen, Maeve, enjoy the hockey today. I'm sure we'll catch up with you you again soon. Of
0: course I will, I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, wish the girls, if you get a chance, wish the team all the best for me. Tell me, I'm so proud of them and and of the way they play and what they've achieved.
2: Maeve Kyle, great to talk to you, thank you.
0: Thank you very much
2: indeed There you go You can't do much better Than having a chat with Maeve Kyle To brighten up your Saturday morning As well as the hockey That we talked about there Maeve ran in a couple of Olympic Games For Ireland She had to overcome Some stiff opposition Which was the topic Of our last conversation mm. I think she was called A disgrace to Irish womanhood Or something yeah, along those yeah. lines which M- uh,
3: Motherhood I think Was it? God, uh, one the other, of the other yeah. Three
2: Olympic Games I said a couple of them She was in 56 in Melbourne Rome 60 And Tokyo 64 So, Hmm. I don't think that's a disgrace to anything. It's pretty good going. (laughs) Yeah, great going. And also, Maeve turns 90 later this year, if you can believe that. So, a massive happy birthday in advance to Maeve Kyle. That match is on at 2 o'clock this afternoon. You can watch it live on RT2 and follow it all right here on RT Radio 1. It it seems, judging by a lot of the analysis today, that it's going to be easier to win a silver medal than a bronze medal. Mm. As in, we could well beat Spain. We, We beat them almost as often as they beat us. But if we don't manage that, then our... Bronze medal playoff would be against either Australia, who won a couple of world titles, or Holland or the Netherlands, who win world titles practically every couple of years. Yeah, so, so it's, it's, ma- it's all or nothing. We no pressure on yeah, the Irish in the summer in the of uh,
3: easy side of the draw conversations. This, we, we're on the easy side of the draw, so let's go for if it. If they approach
2: yeah. it with the same confidence as their quarter-final shootout, it shouldn't be a bother. I think we're all still flabbergasted at the Ali Meek penalty. If people want to watch this, they can yeah. have a look at it there. Just dribbles up to the goalkeeper. Flicks it through her legs in off the stanchion in off the post in a World Cup quarter final. no big deal it's okay <laughs> I'm here all the time uh, properly giggling at Porig and his Galway youth on second captains as a Donegal woman who used to live in Ballinasloe, it brought a big smile to my face a smile rapidly erased by his tour story says no. Emma Cassidy Sorry Can't was have a, it all Emma Emotional roller coaster for you there Emma I'm sorry We're going to be back next Saturday morning 10 o'clock with a gigantic name in British broadcasting who just so happens to be massively plugged into his Irish background Dermot O'Leary will be our very special guest If you can't wait that long want to check us out during the week we've got daily shows on the Second Captain's World Service just go to secondcaptains.com Mark Horgan and Simon Hick produced Killian Down was on research thanks to Cara O'Hare on sound Marion Finucane is up next thanks Ken Thank you Owen Thanks Ciaran Thanks Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening and best of luck to the Irish Hockey Team.
3: Watkins straight down the barrel, she goes, Savita moving on her toes, forces are one way, she's going to score it. Oh! Fairy tale, and it continues. This is monumental.
0: <sighs> Second cap, and first cap, and whatever. They never got on those, those boys.